Welcome to the Something Real podcast, where the people of Westminster College share their unfiltered stories, then create one collective truth that ties them all together. Reporting from Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, I'm Nicole Hunter. Adventure. It's a way of stepping out of our comfort and propelling ourselves beyond normalcy. How do you become someone who feels a sense of adventure in your everyday life? We tapped into two adventurers, Glenn Thompson and Katie Moga Giesing, and asked them to share how to find inner adventure that propels you to overcome inaction to take action. So hey everyone, I'm Katie Moga-Gazing, and while at Westminster, I studied um, political science and sociology and graduated in 2012. I always have to check myself on that. Um, And then after graduation, I actually went on to further study social policy at the University of Pennsylvania, Um, and then eventually landed in D.C. doing government affairs for an organization called Nurse Family Partnership, and I've been with that organization for almost six years now. We're an evidence-based community health program that is proven to improve outcomes in maternal child health and development, as well as economic self-sufficiency of families. I am right now a senior manager of our national advocacy program. So, you know, when I was in D.C., I really started to see how our citizen advocates should be playing a bigger role in this. So moms that are part of the program, nurses that are delivering that program, they should really be at the center of this advocacy strategy. Um, And so that's kind of how I ended up. I'm currently um, working in our national office in Denver um, because I started expanding, you know, my work and really bringing in some of those basic tenets of community organizing, storytelling, and deciding how could we put advocates' voices at the center of our work. Can you tell me about your experience at Westminster? I don't think that you really cared what people thought. (laughs) I think that you really just like did it, and which is so admirable when you're in an age in your life where you are being evaluated by your peers. Like you, you're trying to fit into this social construct, um, but I feel like you actually broke that and you did your thing and other people did follow you. Um, so can you describe where that came from for you? It's a great question, Nicole, and I wish I had a really clear-cut answer. You know, I have always really cared about civic engagement. I just think it's the foundation of our democracy and it's what keeps people going. Like you have got to be involved in the process if you want it to benefit you and the people that you care about. When I landed at Westminster and, you know, maybe everything wasn't right in front of me, but I could just really see the possibilities of how to continue to get involved and to bring people with me. So I think the best way to get people to come along is to show them. And so, you know, when it meant like, we weren't going to be able to have an Amnesty International Club unless I was the president of it. It was like, okay, you know, we'll just do it and we'll figure it out and we'll get people to come to the meetings. Like, people aren't ready to lead it. I'll take it on, but I'll get people there. And you slowly kind of get them, you know, involved and be able to see why involvement in this club could benefit them in, you know, other areas of their life. I have taken that with me, you know, through all the things I did at Westminster 
and beyond. Glenn Thompson, a graduate from the class of 1968 and a member of Westminster College's Board of Trustees, shares his perspective on getting involved. A great quote this morning, you know you can't lead if you're not going in that direction, which is essentially what you're talking about. If you can't get people to, you can't get people to go someplace if you're not going there too. They just won't follow you. I mean, it makes so much sense. I just found it very, very, it's, it's your story in a, in a sentence or two. You and know. Glenn, with your work, I mean, can you talk a little bit about your background? Because you have definite um, experience in being a leader. I graduated from Westminster in 1968 with a BS in chemistry. Two days after graduation, I began my career with PPG Industries as a research chemist. Six weeks later, I married my college sweetheart, Linda, who graduated in 1970 and promptly began, began her uh, teaching profession, her teaching career. Uh, my total career at PPG was 27 years, uh, interrupted after 20 years with a seven-year hiatus at uh, ICI or Glidden in this country uh, that took me to England and brought me back and reinstalled me eventually in PPG. PPG ended up taking me to Brazil after a couple of years back. I spent five years in Brazil, came back, ended my career with a, with a retirement, an early retirement, and decided that it was time to be an entrepreneur. I spent the next effectively 10 years, seven years in active duty, if you will, at, uh, at a startup out of Carnegie Mellon, and the final three years of my work life as a consultant to the CEO of that company. It was eventually sold to our, our largest uh, commercial investor, and off I went to being, quote, retired again. I never really did retire because in the process of being an entrepreneur, I also developed a, a deep, uh, more than casual interest in photography, Re rekindled. I, as a kid, I was a photographer. As a, as a young married man, I was a photographer. And then it came full circle back to me when digital cameras and digital photography became the thing. That has been my life since then. Uh, that's my life and my career since Westminster. Uh, and it still goes on. So I'm not going to quit even at 75. I'm going to keep going. And so you're talking about keeping on going and similar to a question that I asked Katie, like um, describe a level of care. Where does that come from? A level of care? Yeah, like so a care to keep going or a care oh. to do advocacy work. Like where, where does that come from? Well, I wrote a little quote, not a quote, I wrote a little thing that was really in your last bullet point. I said, you know, it's very interesting. You have to discover something that keeps you awake at night or is the first thing that you think about before your eyes come open in the morning. When you discover that, you have discovered your passion, your true passion. Um, it's, that, it's that thing that you pursue that you can't ever get enough of. It's the thing that you are never done educating yourself about, and you never stop learning as a result. You have to overcome. I'm reading a book, and I'm going to talk about this sometime later in, in our discussion. I'm currently reading a book that I, le that I learned about after our first Zoom calls, so you'll see where it fits in. You have to learn to overcome your resistance, the resistance, the resistance of the things that in, invade you and make you stop or prevent you from doing what you should do, or those external resistances that are always pushing back on you, even though you're moving in the direction. You know about this, Katie. You know about all the things that you've ever started in your life and, and had to keep them going through your own initiative. Um, so those are the, 
those are the things that I think are, are really key and critical to finding that inner passion, if you will. One thing I love that you said, Glenn, talking about coming back to photography, you said you rekindled your love for photography, which I think is just a really powerful thing to be able to come back to. How did you get back into that and figure out that that's what you wanted to do? For the <laughs> um, I, I think the answer to the question is, is that it was technology that drove me there. And my wife will absolutely tell you, understanding digital photography through all its phases of how you take a picture, how you extract a picture, how you process a picture, how you print a picture, each one of those is, is, a, is a technology to learn I've had to learn in the past 15 years. And I still don't know them. So I keep getting up at five o'clock in the morning and doing another study on the internet. So my education never stops. The next question I wanted to ask is, um, can you both share in your work how you attempt to elicit understanding through an emotional response that translates to others taking action? So this is a great, a great and tough question. Nicole, I think, you know, in most cases, to get an emotional response, activate it. You have to allow someone to see themselves in someone else's shoes. And the way I do that to direction is through storytelling. Um, there is this great quote from a film director. He directs uh, Pixar films, which Pixar films are great stories. Um, and he says, what you're trying to do when you tell a story is to write an about an event in your life that made you feel a particular way and get the audience to have that same feeling. And I share that every time I'm prepping someone to share their story, whether that's, you know, in a really small way or to testify in front of Congress, right? You have got to just tell someone about how you felt in that moment. And we're going to work together to elicit to make sure that they have that same feeling and it drives them to act in that moment. Let me, let me frame the question in the context of my professional career and my passion career, passion career being photography. In my professional career, in all of the phases of my professional career, I was a businessman. I was engaged in corporate enterprise for 40 some years of my life. In corporate enterprise, it's not about eliciting an emotional response from your coworkers or your suppliers or your, uh, or your customers. It's about elicit, eliciting a financial response, or it's about achieving a goal. It's a, it's a goal-based activity. You hope for very little emotion. You hope for positive response in a business environment. I, I, I led my life being, don't take this the wrong way, hard, if you will, in terms of making decisions that were sound, that advanced whatever it was we were trying to do. Where, where I softened, and this is, this is a, 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 an admission that there was an emotional guy underneath me that I had to suppress and that I have since released with my photography. And the, the release really came many, many years after I started clicking pictures when I started hanging stuff in a gallery, small gallery. And people would come in on weekends and whatever, and you'd see people, they had no idea that you created the, the image, see people's response, emotional response, to something that's hanging on the wall and saying, I just touched someone. 
I just touch someone in a way, I don't know how I touch them, but I can tell by the way they're behaving, I touch them. I've had people stand and stare at my pictures for 15 minutes, walk up close, back up, move over here, move back up. And when you see people doing that, you know that there's something going on inside that has nothing to do with the hardware that they're looking at. It has to do with some visual context in which they're, in which they're experiencing this. They have emoted in some way, collectively, inside themselves, to what they're looking at. Um, I, take, I took that information and it drove my photography in a different direction. It drove my photography to create, to see, first of all, to see the emotional opportunity of something. I started, you know, I photograph a lot of animals, a lot of birds. All photographers end up focusing on the eyes. I really end up focusing on the eyes because the eyes tell the story. If you're trying, if you're a sensitive person, you're trying to get inside of what an animal is about. My, my, my goal in what I do in photography now is to, is to change people's lives, not make my wallet rich. I don't, that's, that's not why I'm in this business. That's not why I do what I do. I do this for people to, to be emotive, emotive, emotive about it. I can guarantee you that the person that I am today is a very different person than I was for 47, 44 years of my life. My life from the day I went to Westminster until today, there was a logic, there's a path. I didn't know it, but there was a logic to getting to meet me to where I am. I just want to get art in front of people. I just want to get stuff in front of people. Um, most of most of the money that I've ever made with photography, I've given it away. I've put it in charities and things like that. It's not about it's not about that financial success of this. It's about to, if I have something to share, why shouldn't I be sharing it? Am I do I sound excited? It's because this is what passion is all about. Is you can't get enough of what you do. You just can't get enough of it. Wow, I love that so much. And. When we first started talking about this podcast, we were talking about a completely different thing. And then we started talking about light and how you both kind of have that idea spinning around um, inside of you in diff very different capacities. So Glenn, what you're talking about is making emotions come from your work and what it takes is the right light. Um, can you talk a little bit about the experiences or the moments that you, you try to shape with the right light? In photography, in photography, in nature photography, um, usually, and if you're doing it ethically, you're talking about natural light. You're talking about the sun in some position in the sky and finding your position on earth to give you that light reflecting on or passing through something. And it's either one of the two. I mean, it's reflected light or it's direct light. And the direct light's that light coming from its source through something to you. As I'm looking for what, what I'm seeing the light cause that object to look like. I leave, uh, I leave myself open to finding those situations and positioning myself to gather the right light. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking for light. I'm trying not to usually create light. I was just writing something down because it's uh, that last piece about, you know, you're not creating light, but you're finding it. It really relates to the type of work that I do with finding advocates and helping them share 
their stories because I think when I when I was at Westminster, I was part of this really cool program with um, Dr. Kristen Robinson to teach courses inside Cambridge Springs Women's Prison. Excellent experience. And as I was leaving, I was going to graduate into this world. And I kept saying to these women, like, you know, you don't have a voice and I want to be your voice. And that honestly really makes me cringe right now that I that, that was kind of the thought I had because I don't want to be anyone's voice. They have their own, right? And they should be telling those stories. I just want to create the space and the opportunities to shine the light on them, to be able to share them in these places where their stories need to be heard. And so that piece around, yeah, no, I'm not being their voice. I'm not creating the light myself. I'm just a conduit of it. And I'm just shining it on them so that they can, so that the rest of the world can hear the story from their own voice. That's very beautifully put. So I guess we'll transition a bit to um, adventuring. (laughs) And so, because really light does kind of link to being an adventurer because it's, again, finding your passion, shining the light on your passions, knowing yourself enough to know what brings out your passion. And I think being part of an adventure is doing all of that, no matter what you classify an adventure as. And so through the work that you do and the humans that you are, I see that you both seek adventure. So can you talk a little bit about taking action, overcoming inaction? Go ahead, Katie. Right. <laughs> I think I didn't start. This is something that I kind of alluded to at the beginning. And, you know, when I asked Glenn about him rekindling his passion for photography, it really made me think about um, how I've rekindled my sense of adventure and sense of um love for the outdoors since I've moved to Colorado. Um, I grew up in rural Ohio, and so I grew up running through the woods and spending all of my time outside, which I just so cherish that I had the opportunity to do that. But I also loved politics and some for some reason, and I just wanted to be a part of that action. And so I really felt like I had to be in DC where that action was and I had to be living downtown really a part of that lifestyle. So for me, I thought, you know, I couldn't live this like sense of outdoor adventure and pursue what I wanted to do professionally. Um, But then I was able to create this opportunity for myself to do the job I love to do, but do it in Denver, Colorado, Um, which for a number of different reasons, allows me to be able to do both of those things, right? Like I thought that spending an adventure or life adventuring and one in politics were two separate things. Um, But, you know, now I still get to spend my days lobbying for the good guys and I can go run through the Rocky Mountains. Most of the time I can do those in the same day, like when we have as much light as we have now at this time of the year. And that has really helped me reshape how I think about all the things in my life that, you know, I'm not limited to just this one thing. And quite frankly, I'm a, you know, I'm a better advocate and I'm a better, you know, member of my family and all these other things, having been able to find this balance that I found being an outdoors woman and being a businesswoman, frankly. And I love wearing both of those hats and I love being able to kind of experience that push pull. And so I think really a way to overcome inaction is to just, I mean, you've got to take risks. 
I was a big risk moving out here. Um, and you've got to be curious. And Glenn talked about this, right? That curiosity and it allows you to be open to, you know, new definitions of what is possible, right? Like adventure is within reach, no matter where you are. Um, and there's just small ways that you can make big changes towards your life and how much that can, you know, affect you in the long run. So like, even if Glenn was still working and couldn't put all of his time into photography, like just dabble a little bit, figure out the ways that you can blend those kind of pieces of your life and find that harmony between what you do for paid work, what you do for fun, you know, what your partner is interested in. You'll start to find that I think there's a lot more room for, you know, blending those all together and it'll just keep you moving. Like Glenn said, if you're excited to wake up in the morning and you're working late into the night because you're just so excited about what you're doing, it almost becomes harder to stop rather than, you know, harder to, to, to get moving. The trick, the trick is, is to be able to balance. And I thought of this word as you were talking is, is to balance your life, to make sure that whatever it is you're doing to put money or to put food on the table and a roof over your head, that you can balance that with whatever your, your, your non, your non paid passion is. Uh, you, you have to be able to balance that. And one of the things that as you get older, I mean, I, I'll, I'll use an example. One of my, one of my outstanding experiences in life was living in Brazil for five years. I was asked to go to Brazil to plant PPG's flag in South America. We built a plant in Argentina and a plant in Brazil, big plant in Brazil. Uh, we did some acquisitions and put together 600 people in, in less than five years and a couple hundred million dollars worth of business. But in doing so, there were some requirements. One of them was that I felt that I had to know Portuguese. So I had to learn Portuguese. I didn't learn it before I went there. I had to do it while I was doing all of this. Uh, I also found this being engaged in the society caused me to understand who we are, meaning collectively the U.S. versus anything else. It was very interesting to become acculturated in a, in a, new, in a new place. I became friends with a guy who taught me to fly airplanes. I bought an airplane before I had a pilot's license. To get the pilot's license, I had to know Portuguese because my test was in Portuguese. I flew the plane home. <laughs> I kept the plane for 10 years here in the United States. Those are all major adventures. I mean, take a 6,000 mile flight across water and jungles and everything else in a single engine plane. Everybody I ever talked to that's a pilot say, I'd die to be able to do that. You know, those, that's an adventure. That's the kind of adventure. But you create those adventures by doing what you're impassioned to do. Right. At the same time, I had to balance all of that against growing this enterprise against a daughter who was in college in North Carolina, a son who had just graduated from Westminster and got married while we were in Brazil, an aging mother who was in her 80s while we were there, friends and family that we left behind. You've got to balance all of that stuff. All of that has to be put into the perspective of your total life, of whatever it is that you're trying to do. My experience was is that life got more interesting because it got more complicated the older I got. Life is a little more simpler now. Not all, not a whole lot, because I've chosen other things to find the take my time and experience. One thing that you mentioned, Glenn, is this like concept of just not like jumping right in and learning as you go. I mean, that has been something that 
I have really had to embrace since moving out to Colorado. I think I was in a, when I was in Washington, I was really good in my career. And it was really great to just, you know, that's something I've always been, I've excelled academically, I excel in my career, and that feels really good, but it was really comfortable, right? And then I moved out here and it was like, okay, I guess I'm going to just learn to ski. Like, again, I'm from rural Ohio, did not know how to ski. Flatlander. <laughs> I'm just going to like, you know, put these sticks on my feet and hop down this mountain. Or I guess I'm just going to, you know, go on a three-day backpacking trip, not having a lot of backpacking skills, but let's dive in and try this and see what works. And I was not very good at a lot of those things to begin with, and I'm still learning, but just hopping in and doing it, I think, has taught me has kind of rekindled my confidence to be able to do that in other areas of my life as well. And there's just such a sense of like rush and excitement of trying something new and giving yourself that space to fail, right? To take that risk, to try something new, um, that it makes the next thing easier, right? If you run a 5k, then you do it and you get the runner's high. You want to run a half marathon and you want to keep going. And that's something that, um, I have found here that I think again, has just really helped me flourish in other areas of my life as well. Let me, let me take what you just said and throw in this thing that I've alluded to a couple times in our conversation. And that is this book that I'm reading. There's a few quotes that I want to leave you with, uh, out of this book. Uh, this, this book is called the war of art. And it is by Stephen Pressfield. You may or may not recognize him. He's an author. He's a historical novelist. Um, he's done uh, stage plays. He's done uh, uh, videos, uh, movies. I'll just read you the quote from the beginning of the book. It said, and by the way, the war of art is what it's called. He said, there's a secret that real writers know and wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It is not writing. It is not the writing part that's hard. The hard part is sitting down to write. You can overcome the resistance. You can, he goes on, he says, what keeps us from sitting down is capital R, resistance. And that resistance he identifies as a thing outside of ourselves that is attempting to destroy us and everybody at the same time because we find ourselves saying we can't do that because, or we don't do that because. So if you're going to pursue something that's a passion, make sure you get by the resistance. You somehow control the resistance to the things that would stop you from doing it. So when you were reading, Glenn, I kept thinking, okay, so yeah, like, yes, <laughs> everything. I'm very much of an action-based person and actually almost to a fault sometimes because I don't think before I act, I just do it. Like I just created this business. It's a, a, I make earrings out of sticks and it literally came to me one weekend. I had my website by the end of the weekend. My mom said, Nicole, like, do you just want to like think about this for a little? I'm like, nope, I'm good. I'm going to just do it. And it is like, it's going really well. And I think that when I think of, okay, what could have held me back from this? It was time. So something, a mindset of scarcity. So this time factor that, okay, we don't have enough time in life to, to raise my kid, to start a business, to pour in something that's thoughtful and, and thought provoking. 
there's also this thought of codependence on comfort. And when I'm listening to you both talking, you don't have that. And I just wonder for alumni who are listening to this, how is it that you do spend your time that gives you enough time to fulfill these adventures and passion? I would say it's where I don't spend my time. And I will say it's been really in the past year, probably a combination of being here in Colorado and the pandemic is like, I don't spend time second guessing myself. And I think that's exactly what you were kind of alluding to there, Nicole. Like if there's something that I really want or something that I really don't want, I've been listening to that feeling a lot more lately because like time is limited. Um, and I am realizing that kind of, even though it feels like we had more time this year, I, I really spent myself like taking an inventory of where I was spending that time. And so like engaging in conversations that don't serve me or relationships that are not providing joy and, you know, anything positive in my life, just really not worrying about them as much. And I think that that's something that like, especially our generation, you really have to give yourself permission to do. Um, I, this is, this is the, uh, the unpaid advertisement for my wife of 53 years. And I couldn't do what I do without my wife. Uh, I, I mean, I mean that in every stage of my life, I, and I've come to appreciate her more and more and more as time goes on. She's my partner. She's my friend. She's the she's the person I choose to spend all of my time with if I can't spend it with other people. Um, I will tell you the comment that I pay my wife and have for many, many, many years is my wife is remarkable in that she's a di been a different woman every year that I've been married to her. And I mean that in a very positive way. She has changed. She has grown. She has, uh, she has embraced uh, beyond anybody's imagining, beyond my imagining of how a relationship, I, I can't say enough about what she is to me and what she is to herself and is to our family. When we're talking about steps you can take, I, I think one thing that Glenn, you're alluding to with your wife, which thank you so much for sharing that. That was incredible to hear. Um, we don't hear those stories enough. I think it's a lot about having, you've got to leave space for yourself to find these passions and to dig into that curiosity. Like if you're going all the time, you're not leaving that space to think about what if, right? Or what's next. And, you know, Glenn, I think in a lot of ways, you you lean on your wife to have that space and to find that time and to bounce ideas off of. And that's kind of, you know, one thing thinking about what you can do it, for me, I really like to talk to people. I like to talk. I like to have deep conversations. I noticed that. <laughs> One thing I don't like, and I will be unapologetic in this, is small talk. I'm like, let's dig in. Like, dinner table, politics, religion, money, hit it with me. Like, because you just are able to find that common ground with people and just find new things. I found like I needed to lean into that and really kind of talk about those things a lot more and have found that, you know, my family felt the same way or my friends felt the same way. And we've really been able to kind of at this point have created space to say like, you know, when we talk, we're talking and when we don't talk, that's okay. Right. That's okay too. It's just, yeah, it's incredible when you do give yourself space, but I'm actually going to jump to the last question. So this is like, the time that you guys get to decide 
um, kind of what your shared truth is. So um, we have discussed your backgrounds and many themes within the realms of light and um, what you accomplish and adventuring and balance. What is your shared truth about how to find your inner passions that propel you to taking action and overcoming unaction or inaction? So there are so many common themes between, you know, some of the stuff that Glenn and I talked about. One I kept thinking about was my curiosity. And I loved what Glenn said about his wife, how she spent a different woman every year that he's been married to her. Because that's something that our society also tells us that we're not allowed to do, which is change and evolve and change your mind. Um, and that, that curiosity, I think, allows you to be that different person every year. And that's something that I had to really understand, too. Like, I, I call myself an outdoors woman now, and I would have never called myself that three years ago. And sometimes that feels fake. Like, am I really that? Because I haven't been that for these previous 30 years of my life. Um, but no, you can change and evolve and you've got right. to be curious to find what your passion is at that point in your life. Cause they're also going to change. You're not going to have that one true. This is my whole passion for my whole life. Cause even within that, you're going to find different parts that light you up. Like Glenn, you might, you know, start to like take photos of a different, you know, maybe it's not animals anymore. Maybe it's people next year. Okay. And it's going to be so fun to dive into that. Right. So I don't know if there's something there, but it feels like this curiosity and just excitement for life and what's next is something that we really share. I think it's a building process that maybe started even before grade school is, is where your curiosity encouraged you to do something and the reward that you got gave you the confidence to take on the next thing that you were curious about until there was nothing that you wouldn't try. Many years ago, there was a there was a, um, a self help guy called Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer did audio tapes and things for people to listen to, and I listened to uh, a, a bunch of his at one point in my life. And I, I was listening to this guy, and he said, "Let me tell you about about trying things." He said, "I don't live in New York, but I went to New York, and somebody took me to a New York deli. I walked into a deli, and I saw things that I'd never seen before. I'd seen head cheese, and you know." roast beef and how it was cooked. It didn't make any difference. And there laying right before me was a tongue, a beef tongue that had been cooked and prepared. And it was laying there, the whole tongue. And the guy that was standing next to me said, have you ever had a tongue sandwich? He looked at the guy behind the counter. He said, you know, I've never had a tongue sandwich. Give me a double tongue sandwich. That's adventure. That's truly adventure. And if you're not willing to do that, you're probably not willing to find your passion. Yeah, I think it's like what I alluded to earlier. Adventure is within reach, no yeah. matter where you are. Yeah. Um, and it's just that matter of saying yes. Yeah. Get getting to yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Westminster helped you foster that curiosity? It certainly helped me figure out how to get people to say yes because I had to do a lot of like stretching the boundary, right, to get to what. I wanted out of that place. Um, but it taught you how to do that. Like for me, I'll talk all day about liberal arts education, even <laughs> 10 years after graduation, right? Um, it has helped me figure out like, there's always a yes in there somewhere. Um, and it's just a matter of 
you know, fostering the right relationships, finding the right story, whatever it is to, to really help you get there. And there's, you know, it's like, it's a place where there's this many majors, but you can always finagle some way to kind of put together two pieces to make your own major or, you know, I wanted to go to a conference and I found some way to get the funding to be able to go. There was always that access if you were willing to go after it. The liberal arts education is, to me, paramount in getting well-rounded people into the world. My curiosity started probably before I remember. And, and I mean, <laughs> I, I, was, I was a runaway kid when I was, when I was tiny little. I'm talking about tiny little. My mother could not put me out in the yard because I would leave and go try and find something to do. And three, my, I wore a dog harness, literally a dog harness attached to a clothesline, attached to a, a, a pole in the yard. So my curiosity started at a very, very early age. Yeah. And as a, you know, it, the, 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 the real process for me, for the people that educated me, was to direct my curiosity, was to focus it. Uh, and, and I have that problem now. I'm interested in so many things. So I'm still trying to grow. And I have, it's, it, I mentioned my mother when I was in Brazil. My mother's 102, still alive at 102. So I got to believe that somewhere I'm wearing jeans that, uh, that are going to take me maybe hopefully further than I am right now, which encourages me to forget about the age. I just wrote this week to somebody. I said, I picture myself as 52 and for many years, what I've done is every time a place asks for date of birth, I roll up the date of birth so that I'm 52. <laughs> Next year, my birthday will be 1979. <laughs> Not 1946. It'll be 1979. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm trying to maintain this mental age of 52. And that, that, that sustains my curiosity, I think. That's really awesome. Well, I just want to thank you so, so, so much. You have such a wisdom and I feel like you have so many connections. I think that it's really amazing to me how both um, of your lives have really intersected at Curiosity. And it's really propelling you. And, and I'm just so happy that you came and spent an hour and a half with me. And I just feel very honored to have spent it with you. So thank you so much. Something Real is brought to you by Westminster College's Alumni Association. For more information about this podcast or ways you can stay in touch with Westminster College, visit westminster.edu alumni or follow us at WC Titan Alumni on Instagram and Twitter and search for us on Facebook. Tune in for more of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. Keep listening for a few special memories submitted by alumni and submit your memory by emailing alumni at westminster.edu and check back if it's aired. A Westminster memory that stands out for me was the 1984 mock convention. I was part of the Iowa caucus, the first state to vote, and we got a hold of a flatbed trailer in the area. It helped to be a local girl. Um, we found someone who was willing to drive us around on a tractor for part of the parade that preceded the convention. 
and we did a lot of research on the different issues facing the state of Iowa. Um, so we opted to represent the farming community and the different industries um, involved with farming there. We re researched what the issues were and um, we dressed in um, the attire and that was great fun preparing for the convention. Um, the keynote speaker that year happened to be a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. And little did we know as we listened to him um, that 36 years later, he would become our president. So that's a neat connection um, to our time at Westminster. And I always appreciated that Westminster provided that opportunity for students. Uh, where we could learn more about how our political system worked and being a political science uh, major, that was a real, um, a real interest to me. So great memories of Westminster. I think it was the year, school year 2005, 2006 is my guess. I was a sophomore at Westminster and I was on homecoming court. <clears throat> and during the homecoming parade, you know, like the court sits on the back of convertibles or trucks or something and they give you a bag of candy to throw to the crowd there during the parade. And so I see the president at the time, President Williamson, and I wanted to throw him some candy. And as you know, most, you know, part of the president's job of Westminster is fundraising. So I got, I got a perfect candy bar for him. So when we were driving past him, it was a hundred grand candy bar <laughs> and I yelled, President Williamson, I have a hundred grand just for you. And I tossed it to him and he caught it. And, you know, he, he was kind of more like reserved, not very like enthusiastic all the time. That was his demeanor. But once he caught this candy bar, he pointed and yelled at me, I will never forget you. I will never forget you. And it surprised me and others around and everyone was laughing and it was, it was a good time. Um, so that's, that, that was a fun memory that popped into my mind for some reason. 